altered by an editor in the 18th century. Don't pay too much attention to that particular slide. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Words can encourage, comfort, and instruct us, but they can also do harm, cause emotional distress, which causes, in turn, psychological and physical illness that can even be passed on to the next generation. We have science now that proves this. It's called epigenetics. I don't know much about it, so we'll move on. The same word might have different meanings to different people. Is your bonnet and boot, your hood and your trunk? And the use of words change over time. I'm old enough now to remember when the word gay used to mean a cheerful person. Nowadays, we all know it's usually used to describe a particular sexual orientation. The word they used to be used as the plural of he or she or it. Last year, it was the word of the year in a certain dictionary, and it's taken to mean a person whose gender is intentionally not revealed or who is non-binary. And actually, after I'd written this, it cropped up in yesterday's paper because it's now been nominated as the word of the decade. It's been around a long time, but because of a changed meaning, it's the word of the... What's the decade called? The 2010s or something. The 10s. Um, Our ankle chains, an item of jewellery, or shackles... Usually the context helps. I'll also mention cakeism, which isn't a word used to describe the Baptist liking for a snack after the service. But it signifies having your cake and eating it, referring to the way many of our politicians regarded Brexit, promising the retention of EU benefits with none of the expense or the responsibilities of membership. It strikes me that the nation was seduced in a similar manner in the recent general election campaign. Sadly to me, it seems that the Brits will do anything for cake. Um, Anyway, let's move away from politics to theology, probably no less contentious. As Gary touched on last week, our Bible translations are far from identical. The way we use language, the way we form sentences, it all seems very natural to us, but it would seem alien to to someone living two millennia ago. And of course, the opposite is true. If we had a word-for-word translation, it would still be a bit confusing. I've looked, I was. The translators of our scriptures most often give us a reading based on meaning, Though if you want to, you can find a word-for-word translation in an interlinear Bible. Someone has put together a chart that explains it. So on the left, the extreme left, you've got the interlinear word-for-word translation. Then a, a range of different translations right through to, on the right, the paraphrased versions which, uh, and it gives the message as being the paraphrase of all paraphrases as the one which is least true 
to the original words, but which tries still to convey an accurate meaning. Coupled with the problem of translation is that of interpretation, especially when there isn't clarity in the original. Then we can add to that our biases, our tendency to choose according to our current understanding or expectation, where there might be many choices. Additionally, we have within ourselves a tendency to be dogmatic, to call an option or an opinion a certainty, and to consider anyone who thinks otherwise a liberal, a backslider, even a heretic. Church history, as we all know, is stained with a multitude of examples of dogmatic intolerance that led to exile at best, or to trial, torture, and even death for some. When persuasion didn't work, coercion was seen as warranted because the end justifies the means, doesn't it? Whose gospel is that, I ask? Whose gospel? Seems more like the gospel of Caesar ruling through fear than that of a loving God who went to the cross to show us how much he loves us. Okay, we don't often kill for our doctrines these days, but I do know of so-called Christians writing on social media that they hoped another writer would rot in hell because of their doctrinal differences. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But it really does happen. Sometimes the meaning of a passage remains uncertain. Better translations will tell you this in a footnote. As an example, we'll look at Psalm 22, verse 16. And I don't expect you to be all, don't expect all of you to be able to read that on the screen. But just to look at the second part of the verse, in the King James Version, it reads, They pierced my hands and feet. There is no footnote. In the New International Version, they pierced my hands and feet. And there's a footnote that says, most ancient Hebrew documents read, they pierced me like a lion. The new RSV, my hands and feet have shriveled. And a footnote says, the Hebrew meaning is uncertain. If we look at a Jewish-English translation, the Tanakh, it says, like lions, they maul my hands and feet. And the footnote refers to Isaiah 38:13, which also features a lion. So uh, the translations vary, and the meaning varies according to the way that they're translated. Excuse me. <coughs> I'd like to focus on one small word from the reading. Actually... I've realized suddenly that I'm focusing not on this word, but on another word that isn't in the Bible, isn't in the original versions in Greek anyway. But the the word I was going to say I'm focusing on is um, this one, pistis. We have the Greek lettering above and the Romanized lettering below. They both read pistis, believe it or not. It means faith or faithfulness. It comes from Greek mythology where pistis was the personification of good faith, trust, loyalty, and reliability. The Roman equivalent of it is fide, where our word fidelity comes from. 
Now, as an interesting aside, in uh, Namibia, they have a Fides Bank, the loyal, trustworthy, faithful bank. I'd rather like a bank like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'm not sure it exists, but if it did, I'd move all my money to it. Um, the word faith is very much central to Protestant thought and especially to Reformed theology. And it finds itself accompanied by grace and scripture in the three soli of the Reformation. I hope. Yeah, there we are. Sola Scriptura, by scripture alone. Sola Fide, using here the Latin version of pistis, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. As it stands, I'm a bit confused, because how can it be scripture alone and faith alone and grace alone? Because there's three of them. I'll have to look into that one further. In our common understanding of being reconciled to God, it's faith that gets us in. We say, come to faith or come to believe, and promise in doing so a relationship with God, an eternal heavenly destiny, and we mustn't forget avoiding eternal torment in hell. So if faith gets us in, how much do we need? Is it like the scales of justice with faith on one side and doubt on the other? Well, actually, that's scope for another sermon because I don't think that faith and doubt are opposites. Faith and unbelief may be, but not faith and doubt. How much doubt keeps us out? Faith too often becomes something we have to work at, to increase, to grow in. Before we know it, faith has become work, and we find ourselves suffering from salvation anxiety. I wonder how many of us have been on the receiving end of well-intentioned but ultimately unhelpful comments when for one reason or another we've been struggling. We're told, just have more faith, pray more, read the Bible more. If you're really down, you might as well just be told to pull your socks up, quite honestly. It would be far better to choose a better way. It's more time-consuming to sit down just to be with someone, to listen if they want to talk, to offer prayers of peace, comfort, strength, and an understanding of the love and presence of God, to reassure that Jesus was faithful to the purposes of God in, in his life and in his death. And he will also be faithful in keeping his promises to us to be with us and to give us peace. What is the resurrection if it isn't a guarantee of his love and his faithfulness and his ability to keep his promises? The word pistis appears over 240 times in the New Testament. I haven't looked them all up. Um, it's co most commonly trans translated as faith, but also faithfulness, loyalty, trust, and belief. On seven occasions, Paul pairs pistis with another word, Christu, to use the phrase pistis Christu. And these are the occasions on which those things appear. Um, I'm not going to look at them all. I have looked at them all. 
Um, the new RSV translates the phrase each time as faith in Christ or something very similar. But every time there's a footnote there saying that the faith of Christ is an alternative. Is it our faith that makes the difference? Or is it the faith or faithfulness of Christ that makes the difference? One of the internet resources lists 60 English translations of the Bible. I looked at Romans 3.21, and in that, found that in the main text, 39 translate the phrase pistis Christu as faith, 19 as the faith or faithfulness of um, of Christ, and two are ambiguous. How they manage that, I really don't know. I admit I didn't count the footnotes for all 60 translations, but many, as the new RSV does, adds a footnote stating the alternative. Now, curiously, before the Reformation, virtually all translations used faith and faithfulness of Christ, not faith in Christ. And that includes the very early King James Version, which was revised about 10 years after its original publication and changed the wording. From the Reformation to the late 20th century, faith in Christ was used almost exclusively. This started to change in 1983 with the publication of a book by Richard Hayes. That's Richard Hayes, and that's his book. I haven't met him, and I haven't got his book. But it made, <laughs> it made quite a difference in theological circles. Um, in the decades since, believe it or not, over 2,500 papers, books, and articles have been published on this particular debate. It's become very, very important. Uh, a lady called Mona Hooker, who is a professor emeritus at Cambridge, she's now in her late 80s, and she's got more publications, degrees, and honors in the theological world than I've had hot dinners. She really is quite re renowned in those circles. Um, she gives four reasons from contemporary theology as to why the idea of Christ's faithfulness is catching on. These are the stress in contemporary theology on righteousness belonging to God, the realization that Paul's arguments most often concern peoples, Israel and Gentiles, not individuals, the growing recognition of participation in Paul's writings, participation in the Gospels is one phrase that springs to mind. And the recognition of Christ's humanity. To this, I'm going to add the of God statement in Romans 3. I'd like to think this is an original thought, but I'm not really sure. Um, this is the section from Romans 3. I'll read through it. And what we're looking out for are little phrases that say something of God. Might be love of God or something else. We'll find them as we read through. Won't be difficult because they're highlighted. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true, as it is written. I'll jump on to verse 5. 
But if our injustice serves to conform, confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness, literally translated as the, the truth of God, abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Missing a few verses and going on to, to verse 21. But now, irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And I'll jump to verse 26. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I've looked at the original. I don't understand Greek. I find the letters very, very confusing. But when you look at it online, it's easy to find. If you look at translations that list the Greek words, then a literal translation of those words, and then an interpretation, you can follow roughly what it's saying. And the phrases in the, in, in the original Greek that are used... In those places I've highlighted in red are constructed identically to those that I've highlighted in blue. So where it says of in red, it says in in blue. Now the, the issue really is that in most of those places, the preposition, a preposition is a little word that joins two others together, like, it's obvious, isn't it, in and of, those words are missing. It just has two words with no explanatory word between them. But in two places of the red highlighted phrases, it says of God distinctly. And in the other places, we have to assume that it's implied that the same applies. So my argument would be that if that phrase construction means a certain thing at one place in the chapter, how can it possibly mean something else later in the chapter? And this has convinced me that the phrase pistis Christu should be trans translated as the faith of Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So what do you think? Does it matter? Well, it might do, or it might not. If you're one type of Christian, someone who feels their faith is so strong they can calm any storm in life, who feels that they can move mountains, metaphorically speaking, of course, um, maybe it doesn't matter very much. But for everybody else, the how much, how much faith question arises Perhaps frequently, perhaps occasionally, but it does arise. If, however, it isn't my faith that fuels the revolution that will see the kingdom of God truly established on earth, but it's the faith and faithfulness of Christ, then the burden on my shoulders is lifted. And if you don't understand what I mean, can I recommend The Day the Revolution Began by Tom Wright? 
I want to, however, clarify something at this point. I'm not saying that we don't need to believe, that we don't ourselves need some faith and to be faithful. What I am saying is that enough faith is simply being able to say that we trust the faithfulness of Christ, that we trust Jesus, that he expresses in his totality the love of God. The great chapter on faith, of course, is is Hebrews 11, which starts by giving a definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I bet we could all quote that, couldn't we? The chapter then goes on to list Old Testament figures who had great faith. But if we look at their backstories, these characters are somewhat different. They had great faith, but also human frailty, human imperfection, faith that wavered, that tried to help God out. We can look at Abram and Sarah, Sarai, rather, as she started off, Abram and Sarai, and the things that happened in their lives before and after God made promises to them. We could look at the life of David, a great warrior, a great lover of God, but he did terrible, terrible things. His family life was splintered because of some of the things that he did. And in the New Testament, for example, we find Peter, who denied Christ at the time of his trial, who ran away, and yet he came back. He was faithful. He found some loyalty, some faithfulness somewhere within him. And he came back, and what happened? He was welcomed back. And that's what always happens to us. If our faith seems to have gone away, if we can find a glimmer of hope, if we turn back to God, he welcomes us with open arms. One last point before I sum up and close. Faith is often contrasted with works. Paul says in his writings that works can never be, I'm going to have trouble with this word, salvific. James, however, wrote in a way that values works as an essential part of salvation. James wasn't very popular amongst the reformers. Indeed, it's said that Martin Luther wrote that James, the epistle of James, is an epistle of straw that contradicts Paul. I'm not so sure. In defense of the concept of faith, or faith alone, you might quote to me Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. My reply to you is the next verse, Ephesians 2, 10. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of, way of life. We agree, really. We need faith. Well, at least, as I've said, enough to know and rely on the faithfulness of Christ. And it is the gift of God to us. We're not saved by works, 
but we are created or reborn to do them. When Paul argues against works as a means of salvation, it's always in the context of rituals and laws. Circumcision, food laws, all the other laws, none of them have the power of salvation. To a first century Second Temple Jew like Paul, salvation was actually something you just had. It was your birthright. It was a covenant. The rules and regulations were something to be kept to honor God and to honor his ways and for his loving kindness to Abraham and his descendants. Paul isn't against works, um, but he does argue against works as being a means of salvation. Rather, they're the outcome of salvation rather than the means of causing it. Why else would he write in Galatians? Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. And he also wrote... Am I on the right one? Yes. Um, By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. These are active things we do. And when we do them, another little bit of the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. So in summary, I hope I've managed to go around in a circle... (laughs) Don't be concerned about how much faith you have or haven't got, but rejoice in and meditate on the faith and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If you can do that, you've got enough faith. Our faith might be a faint glimmer of hope. It might be like a solitary firefly in a large, dark forest, but it's enough. Don't forget that Jesus said faith the size of a grain of mustard is enough and mustard seed is enough. That doesn't seem very much to me. But in the kingdom of heaven, it is enough because it is him that we rely on. We remember that of faith, hope and love, the greatest is actually love. Our motivation can only truly be found in the love of God, which is expressed in our Savior, Jesus Christ. But faith alone isn't our calling. We're invited through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to express the values of the kingdom of God, to build the kingdom of God in our lives individually and together and in our communities, to become these things to become in our lives love, joy, peace, to have patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in so doing, to become the kingdom of God on earth. Amen. Um, Thank you. I think I asked him. And it can only be great as thy faithfulness. (laughs)